This episode is brought to you by LMNT. Healthy hydration isn't just about drinking water, it's about water plus electrolytes. It makes sense, you lose both water and sodium when you sweat. Both need to be replaced to prevent muscle cramps, headaches and energy dips. But most people only replace the water. Why? Well, because since the 1940s we've been told to drink 8 glasses of water per day, thirsty or not. Drinking beyond thirst is a bad idea. It dilutes blood electrolyte levels, especially sodium, which leads to headaches, low energy, cramps, confusion, or even worse. This low sodium situation, called hyponatremia, is very common amongst endurance athletes, shift workers, and those who work outside in the heat, leading to thermal stress. The solution isn't to stop drinking water, it's to drink water plus electrolytes. This is where LMNT comes in. Just mix this flavour, electrolyte drink mix, into your water bottle and you're good to go. It's got no sugar or artificial junk, just electrolytes. LMNT has your electrolyte needs covered. Former research biochemist Rob Wolf and Keto Gains founder Tyler Cartwright and Louis Villasener formulate LMNT to provide the optimal ratios of sodium, potassium and magnesium for health, performance and energy. They also formulate LMNT to please your palate. Many different flavours such as orange salt, citrus salt, watermelon salt and many many more. Just head over to LMNT to find out. Or better still, go down to the show notes, click on the link, the sleep for performance link, to get um, to click on this and get your free promotional pack where you can get a taster pack and no questions asked refund policy as well. You don't even need to send it back. So check it out at LMNT in the show notes. Welcome back to the Sleep for Performance podcast. I am joined today by Anne. Anne, how do I pronounce your fi- your, your last name, your surname? Altsbrook? Exactly. Perfect. Altsbrook. Ooh, I got it right. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Thanks for coming on today, Anne. Um, I'm very interested in some of your work. I recently spoke to Teresa Jones. And on Thursday, I was sitting in the, um, I don't know what you would call it, like the kind of garden slash forecourt slash restaurant area of Latrobe University. And I was talking to one of your friends on this paper, Mr. John Lesky. Let's go. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Fantastic. yeah. So I ran into him. Um, another lady who you might know, Shawnee Ormond. Yes, definitely. She she was sitting there and she was at a lecture I was given at La Trobe last week. And then she introduced me to John. And John actually did his postdoctoral studies in the School of Anatomy, Physiology and Biology at the University of Western Australia, where I did my PhD as well. So a bit of an overlap. <laughs> So everybody knows everybody. You need to be very careful what you say. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's a small community. <laughs> it's too, too small, yeah. So you join us today from uh, Germany. Yes, that's right. Yeah, I'm doing my postdoc here oh, at the Max Planck Institute for Ornithology. Okay, but you're Australian originally. Yes, yes. Yeah. So, so I actually did my my PhD with John and with Teresa um, and also with Raoul Mulder at the University of Melbourne. Ah, uh, okay, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I, I am. Um, when I when I came across your review that was published in Clocks and Sleep, which I really liked, on the oh, light sleep you. and performance in diurnal almonds, it was really it was really good. So, I really want to have a conversation about this today, um, about yeah. this review because it was really it was really good, and I love um how you, um. What you could have taken, I think some people could have taken it as a kind of dry, 
boring subjects, but I thought it was quite animated, nice graphs and pictures, and it was really nice to read. So I really want to have a top a conversation around that. I don't know if I understand half of it, but um, I really want to have a conversation <laughs> around that today because it was really good. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And so this paper is freely available. We'll put the link in the show notes. Um, but before we get into the paper, Anne, how how did you get into this area of researching sleep and birds? Like, did what led you onto this path? It's not like um, it's not like you sit at school aspiring to be a a researcher in diurnal variation of birds, is it? Or did you always have a fascination with birds and light and sleep? No, no, but I. It's kind of funny because, like, my my dad likes to point out that in my final high school speech, I. I was like lecturing everyone on how important it is to sleep well, to do well at school or something like that. Um, so I think I had an interest in sleep and I had an interest in animals um, from an early age. So um, I think early on, I, at some points I said I wanted to be a vet or I wanted to work with animals in some way or another. So yeah, and then um, yeah, I did science degree and just I just kept landing on all the animal subjects. Those are the ones that really fascinated me, the ones about animal behaviour and about um, zoology and conservation. And then when I was uh, looking to do a PhD, um, I, I was just contacting a few people and um, I think it was Raoul who first mentioned to me this idea of, of working with um, black swans and sleep and light pollution and it that just sounded like such an interesting topic to me so about how how light pollution affects affects sleep in birds um and um so that was with him and with Teresa and with John um and yeah and I think I think the thing with science too in general is that the more you engage with a topic the more fascinating it becomes with you too like the more you learn yeah. the more you want to learn yeah 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 I think it's interesting, like um, having this conversation last week, actually in Melbourne, um, on that same topic that people assume, I think in the general population, that when you do a PhD, that you're an expert in that topic and that's it. Like it's it's over. But um, <laughs> myself and Matt Driller were talking. I don't know if you know Matt Driller. He's in exercise science. I don't think so. No. Anyway, anyway Matt, Matt and I were saying the same thing, like basically, you know, that because he was saying that, a friend or a relative was saying to him like, oh, what are you doing these days? And Matt said, oh, I'm looking at sleep and sports and athletes. And the guy goes, you were doing that three years ago. Why are you, like, what's, but like Matt was saying, you know, people think you just kind of do a subject and you crack it and that's it. But in actual fact, you, the, like you said, the more you delve into it, the kind of, it's nearly like the worse it gets. You get more obsessed with the minutia and the detail and you keep going and going and going. And then you realize how much more there is to, to learn about a topic. And it's, it's kind of somewhat annoying, really, isn't it? After a while, you just kind of keep going around and around and around, and you're like more to go. Yeah, yeah. Every question leads to another question, and you, yeah, yeah. That's it's, why it's I hard think. to find a definitive answer answer to anything either. Like you, you think, oh yeah, I'll I'll test this this idea and see if it's true, and then you you look at it and it's like, well, it's kind of true, but kind of not, and let's try yeah, and yeah. find more more yeah. about that, and it goes on. Yeah, I had a. I had a radio interview I did a few years ago and the same thing afterwards, like the presenter was like, I think it was on ABC. He goes, oh, all you scientists are the same. You never give an answer. I'm like, well, there is no a, a answer. Like, it's not like, you know, it always depends on a number of factors. It's not like you want us to come yeah, on yeah. and go, it's this and it's that. And it's never that clear cut, you know? Yeah. Like, that's that's not what it's like. Yeah. Maybe that's part of the problem too, is that there's a lot of people who don't know 
at a trinity events and better willing to give one then well, yeah i think you might be you might be bang on there yeah the old dunning kruger curve yeah they're not don't know much about it but have high um high belief or high um you know affirmation in their in their position so yeah i think you're dead right there yeah so you you went through the sciences and you got more court sort of to towards uh, zoology and um yeah. did you did, are you are you a fan of nature do you like spending time outside or is, is this what kind of drew yeah, you to it? Are you, are you one of those people that wanders around like, you know, like Dr. Doolittle and looking at the birds and singing <laughs> and patting dogs? Are you one of these people? Uh, maybe a little bit. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I like... So it's interesting too, because I study birds, um, some people assume you're a birder as well, that like you're really into like ticking off every single species of bird and seeing, yeah seeing as many species as you can and keeping a list and all that kind of thing. Um, I'm not that extreme, but I like I like watching animals and seeing what mm. they do and trying to understand what they do. And I think, um, yeah, I, th- I think that's what holds the most fascination to me is just watching how animals behave. And are you just yeah. interested in the sleep part, Anne, or is there other sort of issues or things that you're interested in with, with different animals or different birds or whatever it might be like are you interested in like you know singing mating rituals migration patterns or just sleep not just sleep no I yeah I, th- I think um so actually my my research at the moment is more focused on on courtship behavior in pectoral sandpipers who breed up in the arctic um and they're they're really interesting from a light and sleep perspective as well. But I'm also interested in what they're doing with their time up there. So they're breeding up under constant daylight in the summer. Mm. And the males that sleep the least have the most offspring, which goes entirely against our understanding of sleep being important for performance. These males are performing quite, you know, complicated flights and chases and displays to attract females and yeah the males that have slept the least have the most success probably because they're yeah but but is that is that similar to like we see in some other animals like uh, i was listening the other day about wasps or sorry bees and Uh, bees will basically you know have sex and die the males yeah and there's some other animals as well so so is, is this bird kind of like just gone this is my time to, to mate and I don't care because I'm going to die right at the end of it. So is it, is it kind of like an optimization? They're going to kind of just go well, crazy and die. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the difference with these birds is they don't die at the end of it. They then mm. have to migrate across the across the globe and then they come back the following and do it again. Wow. So that's that's the interesting part. And it's, it is difficult to tell how many make it as well, like how many make their migration and how many come back again because they don't tend to come back to the same place to breed. And so you don't see many of the same males again. But, yeah, they do breed over multiple seasons and some of the males... Um, so this, this comes out of what we know about this, this breeding system comes out of many years of research by... Um, my my current host, Bob Kempinez, and um, his team, and um, John Leskew was involved in this work as well. He led the paper on showing that males that sleep the least um, have the most most offspring. But um, yeah, they found that at least some of those males that were super high performing and super sleepless did come back the the following year. Um, and then yeah, so. 
yeah, I find that very interesting. Um, but yes, mm. it, kind it of is. coming back to your question, that's not not all about about sleep. I, I am interested in in other other animal behaviors as well, and yeah, how they how they spend their time um, and how they optimize their time, and how some of these strange behaviors evolve as well. Mm. Because I've seen, obviously, on, um, you know, like every person probably comes up to you like, oh, I saw on David, you know, you probably get 10 questions like that there. But it is interesting watching some of these shows how birds are such an interesting um, animal because the things that they do, like like you're saying there, they can migrate across the, the, the you know, the globe, really. They can yeah. have these offspring. Then they can do these crazy mating behaviors as well where they dance around or make these types of nests or have circles or do all this sort of like peacocking, you know, and obviously peacock is a bird, but like that kind of, that peacocking behavior. And then just to have like, you know, to mate for like three seconds and it's all over and the ball out work into our, <laughs> the things that they do is just quite, it's quite fascinating. And then how the, you know, birds will basically be in sync, like flying in a flock and just all the different crazy things that they do or singing throughout the night. And just, you just think, man, there's a world, a crazy world outside my window. I don't even know about. And, you know, I, I feel like it's just, um, it's like a parallel universe that runs alongside us. And after talking to Teresa uh, recently, I'm like, I don't know half what's going on outside my window. It's crazy. Yeah. I think the thing I like about birds too, is that you can watch these behaviors as well, because, you know, mammals do some crazy stuff as well and fish and, um, you know, every a lot a lot of animals do have these really fascinating behaviors. But birds, you get to see them a bit more because they tend to be mm. active during the day, and you know they can live quite close to us, and they're big enough you can see what they're doing. I, I think that's one thing that has drawn me to studying birds is that it's possible to try and to try and understand a bit more what they're doing. It, yeah. Yeah, I, I won't like to. A lot of times I read papers and I think, oh, wow, that's interesting. But when I read your one, this review, I thought, wow, that's interesting. I'd like to do a sleep and bird project. That's really what <laughs> I, I thought. I was like, I was quite enthusiastic. Yeah, yeah. I was like, I'd like to go and actually maybe work in a lab for a few months on a on a bird project. This would be quite interesting to watch some of this stuff. This would be, or to go into the field and watch it. And I uh, I think there's probably two things that probably strike me as birds and primates I'd like to watch. But I was surprised yeah. how, much I, how much I thought about birds. And I thought, wow, this would be really cool to watch. But... Anyway, that's um, uh, maybe, maybe my wife will get that for me for Christmas, a bird watching tour, and I'll turn into a crazy bird watcher. <laughs> um, let's come back to this paper, which was published in Clocks and Sleep, which is a which is a, a fairly good journal in, um, in terms of making some, I suppose, headway in the chronobiology area. But can you give us a bit of background here? Obviously, you go into the introduction and the background on this, but what, what's the purpose or why would we want to look at sleeping birds? Like, why, why did you want to look at this? So I guess birds are interesting for a few reasons. Like the, so if you're trying to understand how sleep evolved, it can be interesting to look at groups that are not humans and and understand you know how you know similarities and differences in sleep between mammals and um, reptiles and birds are the the reptile we we know the most about sleep in. Um, so I think that comparison is always interesting. And another reason birds can be interesting to study in terms of sleep too is, is you can look at some of these questions around sleep and performance as well too. And so, um, so a, one of the focuses of that paper is about cognition in birds. And there's been a lot of studies on 
looking at how birds perform on particular tasks and how sleep affects those and all yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. Before we get to the performance measures, how do you measure sleep in birds? Yeah, that's tricky. Um, it's so, so there, there are a few things. So a lot of people, I mean, the easiest way to measure sleep in birds is from behavior. So you might look at whether a bird is sitting still and whether it's closing its eyes, but we also don't learn as much as we might like to from behavior. So birds can be a bit tricky in that they can sleep with their eyes open or with one eye open, or they might be sitting still, but not actually sleeping. Um, so really the best way to measure sleep is with a combination of behavior and brain activities. So with the, the EEG um, and ideally also um, the, with um, the EMG as well. So measuring muscle, um, muscle tone, um, preferably in the neck. And so that together, these measures can tell us not only whether a bird is sleeping, but also what type of sleep it is because birds like mammals and like humans have these two different types of sleep, so REM sleep and non-REM sleep. And there's also other characteristics of sleep you might be interested in, which you can learn about from the brain activities. So like, for example, the intensity or depth of sleep during non-REM sleep, you can see in the brain activity. So then... So sorry, just on, yeah. the, just on the brain stats, because you have a great graphic in this paper um, on the figure, um, graphic figure, whatever you want to call it, on the, the non-REM and the REM and the wakefulness of the birds yeah. in different positions. It was really cool. I really liked that. I was like, man, we should do this with humans, you know? Should show a guy, like, <laughs> you know, a guy that's like asleep and another person that's on the ground drunk or whatever it might be. But um, what was really interesting, what I was really interested in asking you was, is there a further classification of those of those non-REM periods like we see in humans, one, two, and three, or is there any similarity in that? Um, or is it just basically like- much yeah it doesn't get broken down in quite the same way um like there are some some similarities in terms of like the, the sorts of brain patterns you might see um in birds and in mammals but there are some differences as well and i yeah we, we don't tend to talk about those those three stages when we're talking about sleep in birds it's maybe not quite so distinct okay and then the the practical application there might be some sleep techs listening to this going how do you get an EEG electrode or an EMG electrode to stick on a bird while they're flying around so what's the practicalities of that <laughs> with great difficulty um <laughs> yeah so so to do do a lot of this stuff you need to put the bird under general anesthetic um and to be able to attach the electrodes in a way that they'll they'll stay um but it this is this is one of the big challenges actually um and it really depends on the environment the birds are in so i spent a lot of my phd grappling with how to get eeg recordings to work on a bird that lives in the water so the black swans mm -hmm. um so you know you put this beautiful equipment on their head and kind of stick it on and um try to get it back a few days later and then, you know, the bird goes and immediately dunks its head under the water. And you can see in the recording that the recording just stopped yeah. uh, as soon as that happened. And so, yeah, it can, it can be challenging and you have to really, I think, customise it depending on the bird site because, you know, you don't want something too heavy on the bird's head. You want something that will stay but that you can get back later or all this kind of thing. So, yeah. Is that, is that, being, local, is that being locally recorded on a, on a device nearby? Like, how, or is it getting transmitted back by Wi-Fi? 
I think we're moving more in that direction, but at the moment um, for EEG, because the sampling rate needs to be so high and the data is so big, um, it's just stored on the, the device usually. So you have you have a um, device that you, so the, the ones that we were used were called um, neurologgers. So it's a device that records the EEG and stores it on board. And mm. then you need to get the device back and plug it into your computer and then you can download the data. So you got to go and capture that animal and bring it back and then take it off, take it out of them again. Yes. Yes. And yeah. is that gender? So, so you have to work with birds you can catch twice. Yeah. God, maybe I'll stick with humans. <laughs> <laughs> that's quite, that's quite, um, that's quite crazy. And you said you did it with the black swan. Was that here in Australia? In Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So um, that, that wasn't my most successful project, uh, the black swans and the EAG. I think we only ever got successful recordings from two, out of um, many, many attempts. But um, we, yeah, we worked with black swans from um, Albert Park in Melbourne. Oh, yeah. Um, We'd have to form yeah, and Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and we, we moved some of those to a, a wildlife sanctuary, so Serendip Wildlife Sanctuary, and we did a lot of work there with them. So obviously at the wildlife sanctuary, it's much easier to recapture the birds. So we could, we set up like, like a little corral so you can just like herd them um yeah. into a like a, a funnel basically and then you can catch them quite easily um but if we were doing this at albert park it would have been a bit trickier trying to catch the same bird over and over to to do these recordings yeah and swan like it's interesting actually just as a side note we've got a lot of black swans here in western australia it's the uh, symbol of the city of perth um here yeah, on the river yeah. we get lots of black swans it's also the symbol of where i went to university at the university of western australia it's a symbol there. But in my hometown in Ireland, in Athlone, in the middle of the country, the white swan is the symbol of our area. Oh, really? Yeah, so it's like the inverse opposite. And there's like, there's these legends and folklore about uh, children turning into swans and living forever. The children yeah. of Lair. Yeah, so it's quite quite interesting. So when I moved to Perth, I was like, ooh, other side of the country. And we've got black swans instead of white swans. Kind of <laughs> somewhat odd. Maybe, but maybe the universe is just um, simulation anyway. Um, so those swans can be quite aggressive. Did you sustain any injuries in trying to corral them? Because I've seen those swans in my hometown absolutely go nuts on people. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the black swans aren't quite so aggressive as as a lot of the European swans or the, um, or the white swans. They, they'll get defensive when they have signets when they have young in particular yeah um but injuries i i definitely got bruises and scratches because as soon as you grab them they they the main thing you have to watch with the swan is the um essentially like their elbow like the the, the wing they have this um yeah. bone on their wing and so when when you catch them they'll start flapping and try and hit you with that so as long as you can um get their wings under control quickly you'll be okay Mm, very interesting so yeah. you also in this paper here and spoke about um, how light regulates and suppresses sleep in diurnal birds so we've spoken in this podcast before about the importance of light and synchronizing like the scn or the suprachiasmatic nucleus in, in humans which has been you know researched and shown in terms of synchronizing body clocks and so on do, do birds act the same is this is it, is it the yeah. same mechanism it is. It's a very, yeah, very similar mechanism in birds. From what we understand, um, they, they also have the, the SEN and the, the melatonin regulation of sleep, which seems to be important. So, um, yeah, it, it's interesting because I, I think some of these mechanisms are 
just very well conserved. Like they, they've probably evolved quite early on before a lot of splits in animals and they've, they've stayed quite the same. Um, yeah. And I, I think that makes birds interesting to, to study as well too, because when we're looking at the effects of say light pollution, um, and how how they affect humans, then you you expect a lot of sim similar effects in birds. Yeah. And um, one thing I was also hoping with my research is to find some common solutions, like things, because we know in humans that this, these blue wavelengths of light are particularly um, bad for sleep, or they're very good at keeping us awake at least. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so uh, we were hoping the same could be true for birds as well, and that that could be like a, a general general solution um, if we were to tune our lights to be a bit more orange and a bit less blue then maybe that could help everybody sleep a bit better um, so it turns out it's a little bit more complicated but yeah so so do, do the birds actually have an SCN the very same as humans and a pineal gland yeah um yeah. man god it's been a while since I um, was doing this work so I was like yes yes I believe I, they do yes um, the one thing that birds have a bit different is um, they they also have uh, receptors more in the brain as well too. So um, I, I think it's a little bit unclear what the importance of those are, but presumably light can penetrate through the skull a bit, and so oh. um, presumably, uh, and so then that can also be, be, be light sensitive as well. So it's not just what's happening in the eyes with birds um, in terms of like reception of, of light and what's being passed to the SCN. It's also what's happening in the, um, in the, in the brain too. Would, would this be there because of, let's say, um, unlike humans, birds are outside, unless people have them as pets, but birds are outside and they're, and they're a lot of seasonal variation in terms of like light and dark cycles. So would this be like a, a potential mechanism to increase light um, absorption really in, in periods of darkness, like in the winter, or just to get more of that to synchronize them? Is it like a kind of an evolutionary thing, potentially? Yeah, it could, maybe. I I wonder if it's also like a morphological thing too, because bird, birds, like I, human skulls are, are pretty thick. Um, oh, like, yes, I, I know. <laughs> I got one. I got one here. I got one here for you. I got one here right for you. Oh, perfect! Sweet. Nice. <laughs> um, That's nice. The, the nice. top it's, of the skull. <laughs> now, if anybody's freaking out watching this, that's not a real skull. It's meadow of ha it's hand carved out of wood from an Irish artist who made it for me. So it does. It is the same size as a human skull, but it's not a real skull. So don't anybody be reporting me on YouTube. It's not real. It's wood sorry <laughs> yeah, I, so um the top of the bird skull is a little a little bit translucent so mm -hmm. I, I wondered too if that that might be part of um part of it that, yeah and yeah so the, i guess that yeah it's, it, there's a lot of similarities but there are some differences between birds and mammals and how these things work and when we're looking at birds and sleep, let's say across the year, because obviously they're more probably, I would, I would think they're more in tune with the natural environment. Do you see big changes in the periods of REM, non-REM and wakefulness across the year? 
Yeah, there's been some very interesting recent work on this um, by by a group with geese, um, where they've been, um, yeah, looking at because of course, um, for the reasons I mentioned before, it can be quite difficult to record sleep year round or mm. multiple times across seasons in birds. Um, but there's been some more recent work um, with this, yeah, with this these geese, and there there definitely is some variation. So and kind of in the way that you might expect. So the, the geese were sleeping more in winter, um, less in summer, and there was also influences of, of um, cloud cover and light as you would expect as well. So it's quite interesting, yeah. I can't remember exactly what they found in terms of REM and non-REM, but I, I do remember there was some, some variation with season, yeah. Yeah, well, one of the things here that did say on this, actually talking about geese, and this is what I wanted to get into a little bit as well, is the impact of moonlight. So, you know, when we talk uh, about when we talk about light, um, you know, humans. Um, I spent some time last week with the, the people at Monash. You know, Sean Kane. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of light yeah. stuff. So we're hanging out with Sean last week and um, in Melbourne at his lab, and so like one of the things that we know, like you were alluding to, the orange and the blue light and so on, um, and its impact on performance. So I, I, I read something the other day, like, I don't know, it was, on, it was on YouTube or Twitter or something, and people were asking about moonlight, about the impact of moonlight on sleep. And so from the papers I've looked at, there's no impact of moonlight on human sleep. Like, there's no impact of um, fire. So when we look at a natural fire, because it's quite orange or yellow, we, we don't really see any impact on people's sleep as well. We're sort of optimized for that from probably the days when we were cavemen. But also with moonlight as well, we don't see anything. And it, and there's been a few papers looking at lunar cycles and moon brightness, if you want to call it that, or the lighting level of the moon to see if people have like, you know, periods of manic behavior because people go, oh, a full moon, he's crazy. Um, so there's been some papers done on that and there's actually been no correlation. Although there was one paper, I think last year that said, in, I think it was in China, that hospital emissions were up more on in the mental health area on, on the moonlight, but I don't think it was statistically significant, but anyway, it was just it was just interesting. But but it did say here in this paper that in the review that you did that during full moon sleep in geese did not vary with cloud cover, but um, likely because the light from artificially illuminated clouds was similar to the moonlight. But it did say then um, that the uh, now I've lost it. I think it was on the oh look at that completely lost it now. Ah, uh, so so with um, ah uh, yes, yeah, I remember this as well. So oh, sorry, sorry, I found I found it. I'll say it before I forget. <laughs> On moonless nights, geese had less non-REM sleep when there was medium to maximum cloud cover. However, during a full moon, sleeping geese did not vary with cloud cover. Yeah, yeah, and I I can't remember if they what the light pollution levels were like in this study because I, I think it was interesting so the because you know of course when there's cloud cover and there's there's no full moon then mm. there's a much bigger difference between when the clouds are out and you have light reflecting off the clouds then it's yeah. much brighter than when it's clear um but then if you have a full moon then it's bright both when there is cloud cover and when there isn't um so i, I thought that was really interesting result um yeah, and the other one that's interesting here as well, a bit like humans, I think as well, numerous studies also found that when exposed to artificial light at night, humans or birds, increase activity, nightclubs, yeah. <laughs> reduce sleep behavior at night, it's a consequence of nightclubs, 
And so I thought this was interesting as well, because, um, you know, I've had a bit of a challenge in my yard. And I think most people do in the spring, early summer in Australia, when you've got these little um, uh, willy wagtails out chirping away. Uh, just yep. sing throughout the night you know like it's just absolutely crazy that they can be just singing all through the night but talking to yeah. Teresa she was telling me this has actually got to do with light yes yeah, yeah and it's um, artificial light could be affecting this as well light pollution could be making them think that it's actually moonlight and that's in that's affecting their behavior yeah yeah it's it, it's it's really interesting too because we forget that animals evolved with this lunar cycle as well too and and behavior can vary with the lunar cycle and that's you know what they're adapted for and it would for us it would maybe mean that you're only being woken up by a bird singing a you know couple of days a month rather than every single night and then you have mm. these unnatural levels of light at night that are change yeah changing how animals behave at night and yeah. um i think there's been a lot of work on this, but we're still trying to understand, I think, how how, how bad it is. You know, we, we know that it's changing behaviour, um, but understanding the costs can be a bit tricky. So, for example, you might have birds that sleep less at night when there's more light pollution, um, but forage more at night as well. So they might mm. be taking advantage of the light to do more. In the same way that we do, we, we use lights to be more productive in the evening. Or Yeah, like evening. shift workers. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so, and so then the question is like, well, do the benefits of the more foraging at night outweigh the costs of, of losing sleep or, or disrupting these, these activity cycles? Um, my guess is no. Um, because we know how, like, for a great example of shift workers, right? Like, mm. we know that shift work is really actually quite harmful to people's health. It's this, this, um, these changes in the the timing of your behavior and your 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 sleep and wake cycles can be really disruptive when we're not really designed to work like that. Uh, we haven't yeah. evolved to work like that. So. I my I suspect that it's similar. It's similar for wildlife that um, the the benefits of of being able to do more at night don't really outweigh the costs. Hmm. One thing on this area of shift work. So in in my day to day job, you know, I do a lot of consulting into mining, oil and gas, rail, and particularly in mining where there's lots of shift work and they have these remote fly and fly out camps, which you would probably be aware of mm -hmm. um, here in Australia. And after talking to Teresa and looking at this a bit more deeply. Um, we've actually started to talk to people about their camp design, and, and this might be a bit of interest to you. So a lot of times these fly and fly out camps, they'll build a camp like in the middle of nowhere. So there's not a lot of vegetation around or there's not a lot of, you know, sort of activity. But they'll build these camps with little dongers or little sort of demountable portable rooms. And then, of course, the environmental advisor on site says it'll be good to put trees up to make it look nice and it'll be good for the environment. So we put trees yeah. up and then we attract birds. So we attract birds to outside of our sleeping environments, which can actually impact the shift worker's sleep if they're sleeping during the day because of the avian activity. But also then as well, because it's a camp, we want to have energy efficient lighting. So we put in LEDs, which are quite blue enriched. And so what you've seen now, and I observed this in a couple of operations recently in the camps, the more trees that they have, and this is just anecdotally from two places I've looked at, the more trees that they have, the more bird activity they have, 
And then at night, the more white light, the more activity to have. At a point even yeah. where I was walking around a camp at about nine o'clock at night and it was dark and I had some of the camp had old orange lighting. There was no birds around it. Some of the parts of the camp had the white, blue and rich lighting. And it was like it was like a, a movie. There was about 500 birds foraging and picking at the ground and going crazy. And then it was like two or three of these, um, I don't know what to call them, something jacks, picking at like worms or something. And it was just like, it's like a nightclub underneath this light. Two lights down under the orange light, no activity. So it's interesting how from an environmental perspective, we think we're doing the right thing, but we're actually impacting people's sleep because of the noise, but we're actually not doing the right thing from an environmental perspective. Where in actual fact, if we want to plant trees and create life for birds and a habitat or a sanctuary, whatever you want to call it to go to, we probably should be building like a separate garden away from the sleeping environment. What's your thoughts on that? That's so interesting. I feel like, oh, that sounds like a study right there. Of, uh, See, <laughs> I, might get to do my, I might get to do my birds study. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah we should, and, we, and we should keep in touch after this because I have an idea. So let's, let's keep in yeah, touch. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that sounds so interesting. Um, I think uh, one of the interesting things you mentioned there too is the, the, with the foraging of the birds too because there's a lot of research showing that um, a lot of insects are more attracted to these bluish lights than to yeah. the orange lights and so you have this kind of stack on effects so you have you know different colored lights and then you have you know prey items for the birds getting basically much more attracted to one type particularly at night and then the birds are coming there and then you know it's probably affecting them more as well so yeah that's that's so interesting i, think, I mean I, I think it's like humans i think it's like on a friday night we put on we have lights on a friday night we can stay out we can go to the pub what that does then is because humans are out, it creates a whole new system. You have a kebab shop open, people get drunk and go on a forage in a kebab shop. It's the same system that's happening yeah, for yeah. birds as it is for humans. It's nearly like you could have like two parallel studies running in birds and, and humans, because when you take away all those bright lights and the activities and the food, people just go to bed. Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And yeah, yeah, it, I, I think it is so much the same. And and it's, yeah, you, you know, you can't blame the birds either. Like if, if there's the opportunity there to, to eat more and stay up later and um, and we see this in the Arctic as well too, like mm. under these natural constant light systems that when the opportunity is there to just forage throughout the day or, or try and court females throughout the day, then that's exactly what the birds do. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, you can't blame them. It's like we're humans as well, like a social jet lag, you know, people bang on about, you know, about stuff, but I'm like, well, you've got lights inside your house, you got Netflix, you know, it's down to behavior as well. I said, and yeah. actually think, thinking about now talking to you, in some ways humans are worse because we can make that choice. I don't know if bird, if there's if there's research in birds making decisions and having free will or not free will. I don't know. But um are they conscious? Can they make the decisions? Are they ethical? Are they are they able to do trade-offs? Like, I don't know. Maybe this this maybe this is a nice segue into one of the sections on your review, which actually is called Sleep affects affects avian performance, so bird performance. So sleep for performance for birds, like so. This is probably a nice segue into this. So, um, around cognitive functioning and so on. So, can birds really make these decisions? Can they make these decisions? I mean, they haven't read the papers uh, like we have. So we we know a little bit more. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, so I will mention too. So this this paper was a, a collaborative effort um, between me, John, and um, Robin, who 
was another PhD student um, at the same time as me with John. And so Robin's speciality was the, the cognition part of things. So this okay. section of the paper is very much Robin's. Um, so he he knew um, a lot more about the, the res research on, on cognition in birds. Um, but I think what, from what I understand and what, what, I, what I remember, um, birds, I, I mean, there's always new studies coming out, right? Showing like birds do more than people expect that they can. Like they can, they can reason, they can, um, they can cooperate and they can do all kinds of things that um, we like to think humans are unique, but we're really not. There's a lot of other animals that can do a lot of things that we can do. So in terms of how light affects performance in the birds, it's been quite interesting in that, I mean, maybe this is exactly going back to what we were saying before, there's no definitive answer. There's, mm. there's really mixed results on how light affects performance in birds and how sleep loss affects performance. So we have some examples where, you know, it does seem like the, the loss of sleep does impair birds' ability to, to solve some types of problems or do some types of tasks. But then we also have examples where quite extreme sleep loss, under quite extreme sleep loss, the birds can seem to do fine, um, which is also really interesting. Uh, so like the example I mentioned in up in the Arctic, that these, these birds that are having to um, work very hard to, to convince females to mate with them, um, mm. they, they can be active you know, 95% of the time for weeks, which is, it's just wild. Like you, you think about what we would be like if we were working on maybe one to two hours of sleep per night for weeks at a time, trying to look attractive to anyone. Like that's just absurd. Uh, we'd, we'd be a mess, but these mm. birds can, can keep pushing through. So is there I, any, I think that's quite interesting. Yeah. Is there any sort of like, um, mating benefit to it as in like do the females look at the males and think wow you know you're so sleep deprived you must be strong is it like an inverse signal or that you know you can get by on less sleep so it makes you really strong and virile and i want to mate with you yeah that's interesting and that really depends on what the females are doing right um and that's we don't we what we know is that the females are keeping pretty normal sleep schedules normal-ish at least during this mm. time so they they're they're sleeping their usual like seven, eight hours a day, even though there's constant light. Um, so I guess there's a question there of whether the females can know that the males are constantly active, right? Like, so if whenever she gets, she's out and about, she sees a guy doing stuff, that's impressive. But, you know, maybe if he was just doing stuff when she's awake, then it would have the same effect. So it's, it's an interesting question of like, how much can the females know about how active the males are? What's the most, um, I suppose, what's the biggest signal for um, birds being attracted to their birds, as in male, females to males? Because from what I know, that it's basically the males have to kind of put on a show for the females to, uh, to be attracted to them. So is it singing? Is it like how to stagger around? Is it nest building? Or, or does it depend on the different species? Or is there one kind of hierarchy of, of behavior that kind of trumps them all? I don't think there's one kind of hierarchy. I think it really does depend. And there are also, you know, different mating systems. I think the most common one we hear about with birds, which is what these pectoral sandpipers use that I've been talking about, um, is 
where the males will mate with multiple females um, and then the females are um, left to care for the young, but it's not always like that. So there are also species up in the Arctic, for example, where the females can mate with multiple males and then the males care for the young. And so then oh. you have quite different dynamics um, at play of like, well, how do they how do they choose a mate and how do they um, yeah, how do they work across the season? So but the same yeah, with there's, there's a lot of variation. Hmm? Are penguins like that? Does the male look after the penguins and the woman goes hunt, hunting? Yeah, the males um, incubate the eggs, I think. And I don't, not all penguins, but definitely some. Um, and there are also some where the, they take turns, um, they do shifts. So like mm. in, in black swans, for example, like both, both care for the young and often like the males tend to incubate the eggs more during the day while the females tend to incubate more at night. And so a lot of these, a lot of birds have these kind of systems where like maybe one one sex tends to be on the nest at particular times of day and the other at other times of day so which is a an interesting form of shift work too right like you have yeah, yeah. um birds that might actually really switch their their timing of activity depending on whether they're on the nest or what time of year it is in terms of breeding so it's mm. quite interesting this is fascinating stuff yeah um so in this in this uh, performance stuff like some of the things that was was listed out here and i know you were saying this was robin's kind of area but one of the things that really kind of uh, i was surprised at, well not surprised i just took my interest was the singing the song learning mm-hmm. and yeah. it says here like the songbirds sleep can be important for learning elaborate vocalizations called songs songbirds use their songs to communicate to communicate including to find mates and defend territories they developed their songs at an early age by first forming a template of a, t- a tutored song. So obviously that's passed down to them, I suppose. Then practicing by imitation and auditory feedback until the song becomes an accurate imitation of, of the tutor's, tutor song. By the time of sexual maturity, the song crystallizes, which is characterized by stereotypy. Is it? Or stereotypy. But also as well, yeah, yeah. it goes on to say that um, the song complexity declines across sleep. So when the birds are sleep deprived, they can't be. They can't do the song basically to the complexity that's required. So basically, the less sleep, the poor the song performance. Yeah, it's very interesting, right? Like the yeah. so and song for for songbirds, song is incredibly important, and um, it's how they might you know they use song to defend territories or to attract mates or um, more more general maybe communication sometimes as well. So. Yeah, so sleep, and, and the role of sleep is interesting there too because it's not necessarily what you expect. Like the, um, so it, it's almost like you need to, to unlearn some things so that they become a bit less fixed. If you, if you don't have enough sleep, then you don't get to, um, oh, I'm explaining this terribly, but um, <laughs> one of the, the interesting result, um, findings was that um, song performance in a way seems to be worse after sleep it's almost like it, it gets a bit worse overnight but then it improves more during the day oh um, yeah so it's like a sleep inertia effect so when you wake up in the morning kind of groggy can't sing but then as you get better yeah yeah and and thought to be something to do with like maybe um yeah like you need to sort of break things down a bit to improve them but in, I, I, I think that's the same in humans though and yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't think it's... humans are very good at singing in the morning, despite what they might think in the shower. I, I think that, 
Um, I'm nearly, I interviewed a composer actually on this podcast a few years ago, and I, I'm nearly sure he spoke about that. Maybe it was someone else about singing in the morning was, you know, vastly or, you know, impaired. And I think maybe I read it. I don't know. Anyway, and I remember somebody else saying about performing on a TV show. And again, it could be in a book or a documentary trying to do early morning breakfast shows is like near impossible for people to sing. It's so bad. That's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. So that's similar as well. But it gets better as the day goes on for the bird. Is there a peak period where it's best, like 2, 3, 4 p.m.? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> possibly, possibly depends, I think. But yeah. yeah, it's fascinating. The other one that fascinated me here as well was that sleep um, uh, also influences song learning at a, uh, a neuronal level. Several brain regions that make up an avi- avian song system which have been studied in zebra finches during sleep, the neurons in these regions spontaneously activate in a pattern that matches the activity during daytime sleep. So that's like the brain is like, like learning overnight. This is like this classic thing that we talk about, well, consolidating memories and patterns and so on. So this basically in the zebra finches, the the brain is firing in the same way it would during the day if it was singing. So it's basically trying to replicate this over and over again and to, to consolidate this memory. Yeah. It's like an overnight rehearsal. And this is so cool. This is really, this is really interesting. Yeah. What a fascinating area to research. Yeah. This is, yeah. It's really interesting. I could probably go through this line by line picking out stuff, but these were just some of the things <laughs> that jumped out. Yeah. I could go, go back and could go over it every day. Um, yeah. The other one in sort of the wrap up it, it spoke about was the ambient light um, to sleep and performance. Um, so, which we kind of touched on as well, about this artificial light as well. Um. So was there anything else in terms of light that we see that was positive or negative impact on birds? Like, is there even a positive impact of this on birds for the, for the exposure to light? Light pollution? Yeah. I mean, we could talk about, I guess, what we mentioned before, that maybe it can create more foraging opportunities or, um, you know, I guess similar benefits to in humans that maybe it can create opportunities to do more later into the evening, which maybe they could benefit from sometimes. Um but in terms of uh, health and sleep and um, and that kind of thing, then I think there's, yeah, it's all pretty negative. Yeah, it's not really a positive thing that comes out of it, is it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, but I, I, guess, I guess one thing is interesting too is that when, you know, you also have cases where, it's not positive or negative you just don't see an effect which might suggest that some birds can can endure or or can can cope okay with with these environments and um and and that's that's always an interesting thing with this type of research as well too is that if you're you're looking at birds in urban environments you're only getting the birds that have managed to stay in urban environments there's a lot of birds we don't see at all in urban Mm. environments and they're probably the ones that can't cope um, whether it's they can't cope with light or whether it's some other aspect of urban environments like noise or just continual disturbance or, or lack of habitat that they, they just don't cope well with these, um, yeah, with be, being in the cities. But, um, yeah, sometimes we, we do find no, no effect of, of an urban environment on, on a particular thing we measure in birds and that might be that these birds are the ones that can do okay. Yeah. So, and people, people may ask you, um, people might say to you, well, what's the point of doing this research? What, like, what's the benefit of 
to us as a, as a society by looking at sleep, light pollution, mating behaviors, all this in birds. Like, what does it really matter to us as a species? Wouldn't our money be better spent off, like, you know, investing in maybe nutrition research or sleep in humans or, or things like this? So, what 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 would you say to that question? And that's not. That, I'm just I'm just trying to be a bit provocative here, but I'm just wondering. Oh, I'm, yeah, not, no. I'm not saying it's really good research. I like it. So apart from the entertainment <laughs> fact, factor, I'm just wondering. Some people might be listening to this and go, "Yeah, that's all good, but what's the point?" Yeah, and I mean that's a question we have to ask ourselves all the time in this field as well too. Like, what are, what are we contributing? Like, what is what is the point? Um, I think for me, I, I think the you. You can learn unexpected things that can lead somewhere unexpected. I think mm-hmm. when you when you study when you study animals other than humans, um, you can you start to get a bit more at like some of these general trends across the animal kingdom or differences. And you know, like for example, how how do some birds cope with so little sleep? Like that's a fascinating question mm-hmm. that maybe can lead somewhere that could benefit people. Um, but even if it doesn't benefit people. Maybe we learn something that can benefit birds that we can apply in conservation. Yeah. Or maybe we just learn something that is just super interesting and that gets people more interested in like, well, what the hell are these birds doing? How do they live? Um, and I think that's something that maybe we, we underestimate is that the more you know about something, the more interesting it becomes to, to mm. not just to scientists, but I think to the general public as well too. You see with these types of studies that, People are interested in what what animals are doing and how they do it and these incredible things that they they do in their lives. So I think yeah. there's value in that. I totally agree. And just, you know, me personally, I think that the more we understand about nature collectively, whether it be humans, animals, or this planet we live on, the more we understand about, you know, science really, the, yeah. the better we're going to be as a species. We need to, we need to move forward. We need to understand because understanding is what we need to do. I think too often we, um, we don't take the time to understand or know. We just jump to conclusions. So the more we understand and the more we find out, the better we can be. And like you said as well, you know, from a conservation point of view or supporting our natural environment, our other fellow friends on this planet, it's a, it's all good stuff. And if we can get some stuff that we can share across the humans as well, and maybe vice versa, then it'd be great. And I think what we just spoke about in terms of the sleeping environments or the camp environments in mining is a classic one where it's like, well, we know this impacts humans and we know it impacts birds. So maybe we can do something different in camp designs going forward, you know? And I think we should um, probably explore that after this podcast and talk about maybe some stuff we could potentially look at in that, because that to me is a, is some low hanging fruit that helps from a, um, from a human perspective to increase sleep, which then leads on to better productivity and better health of your shift workers, uh, actually helps with conservation, increases bird populations and doesn't do any negative damage to them and reduces the negative impact of light pollution, like we said. So maybe it is looking at lighting structures or moving sort of, you know, a bird sanctuary slash garden elsewhere as well. Because um, like I said to somebody recently, you wouldn't put an aviary in your bedroom, would you? So why are you building it outside your front door? So it's a little bit silly, you know, I think in some ways, you know. So yeah, yeah. very interesting. So and what's what's next for you? You're in this postdoc position, you're in Germany, um, you're you're working away. Um, what's the big kind of things you're working on over the next couple of years and what's your goals? Uh, I want to understand more about what these these Arctic birds are doing, the ones that are active all the time and and seem to do okay. I want to know what they're doing with their time. So that was um, we went up to went up to um, Utkiavik in in Alaska uh, earlier this year and collected a lot of data. So 
I'm analyzing that now. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I don't know, to be honest, I'll, I'll see where things go. I'm, I'm generally interested in, in how sleep relates to an animal's environment. I, I find that very, and not just not just like the physical environment, but also the social environment. Um, so we'll see we'll see where it goes. Yeah, and so Anne, if people want to follow you on social media, research get LinkedIn, these type of things, are you have you got a presence out there? Are you putting up some of your research on these platforms? Yeah, yeah, I do. I, yeah. I haven't been so active on Twitter late, lately, but I am there. And yeah, you can definitely find me on ResearchGate and and the other all the platforms you mentioned for sure. All right. We'll uh, we'll put some links into the show notes as well. Um, and thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate it. Great conversation. I could talk for days on this subject, and uh, maybe someday over a cup of coffee we can sit back with our feet in the fire and um, have a have a chat a bit more about this face to face. Yeah, yeah, that would be fantastic. Thanks so much for inviting me. It's been really no nice worries. To chat. Thanks, Anne.